Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. Last week, we explored the connection between the absence of allyship and trauma and pain, not only for those without skin privilege, but for those with it, for white people. If you haven't listened to that episode, please stop now, go back, and listen. For those who have already heard it, let's take a minute to remind ourselves of some of the reasons for becoming an ally. I just love people in general, and I just have always been someone who wants to stick up for someone, and I feel like that's the golden rule. You do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Clearly, there's enough in the world for everyone. It's just being apportioned in a systematic way so that people who do not have and don't look like me are going to get less of it, and that's not okay. If you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, so... You know, I think by teaching these soft skills of critical thinking and conflict resolution and emotional intelligence, we would see a very different, hopefully, interaction with communities that are oppressed by organizations like police forces. So for me, it always comes from this place of equity. I hate to use the word social justice because that's kind of been appropriated for a different flavor. But why is it so difficult for people to treat other people kindly and fairly? It's a big stage. We can bring everybody up here. There's no reason why people in the executive staff should not look exactly like society. I want to see an orthopedic group that represents society as a whole. Without racial equality and equity, then there is no women's equity and equality. And I get that. But just have a higher level of of humanity. If you're going to adopt a worldview or a people view that we are one, we are one, like a unified being then we're ever, only ever meeting ourselves. And how would you be fair, equal, and embracing of you that didn't look exactly like you? I want to relentlessly pursue making the world a little bit better for somebody I might not ever meet. I do some executive coaching around inclusive leadership. And actually in our interview, the kind of the final closing meeting I had with, with an executive, she said, you know, not only is this maybe a better leader, but also a better human. And it's really being a good human and learning how to be the best human you can be. The last voice you heard is Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally, Actions You Can Take for a Stronger, Happier Workplace. Melinda is a diversity and inclusion expert who works as a strategic advisor for tech companies, tech hubs, and governments around the world. She spoke about how investing in equity and inclusion has benefits for all areas of our lives. Of course, there's some leadership benefits as well, because, you know, when you when you have empathy for your team, when you have empathy for an understanding of what they're going through and you're taking action as a result, you're a better leader. And your team is going to be more innovative, more productive, more profitable, and ultimately, and um, you're going to reduce your turnover. All of those things are important. And then as an individual, you might actually take some of that into the rest of your life as well. Building that empathy muscle has so many other components to it. And then activating empathy is, is about 
learning and about understanding and also about taking action as well, showing empathy. Sometimes, like for Brian Miller, executive director of Heeding God's Call to End Gun Violence, a grassroots and faith-based organization headquartered in Philadelphia whose mission is to reduce and prevent gun violence, activating and building empathy for others comes about as a direct result of personal pain. It was following the murder of his only brother, Mike, that Brian felt God calling him to become an advocate for violence prevention. I never thought about many of the issues about memorialization and the faith connection with gun violence prevention and ending and so on. But when Mike was shot um, and killed, at that point I was I was raised Presbyterian, but at that point I was really not anything. I was not intentionally anything. I didn't go to church. I didn't get involved in any faith-based things. And uh, I learned something really quickly is when you suffer something like that, at least many people and certainly me, I needed God. And thank, thank God he's there. So I went back, started going to church and doing all those things. And now um, that makes me an emboldened activist. And I believe the work we do is actually a form of worship. Whether you're compelled to be an ally because you're heeding a divine call, or whether you're driven by data, being invested in the well-being not only of ourselves but of others brings about miraculous outcomes. One data point that just is amazing, and which I go back to a number of times in the book, uh, there are a few countries on this planet in the developed world most notably the Scandinavian countries, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Holland, New Zealand, and a few others, where the sense of society is actually much, much stronger than the sense of individual. And in those societies, you know, they pay higher taxes, but in return for more and better public goods, they look out for each other. Those societies invariably, whatever index you use, are not only richer, they are happier. These are amongst the happiest countries in the world. Now, that's something to think about. Uh, I think when people withdraw into, it may be themselves or their unit or you know their ethnic group or whatever, they invariably wind up hurting themselves. Let's just take the issue of race. It's still very, very, very difficult for a large swathe of the black population to actually make economic ends meet. And this, in part, is historic. In part, it's due to laws that you know were passed and regimes gone by. In part, it's due to, to circumstances today. The white population should be invested in actually helping the black population to be able to get beyond that because in doing so they will generate more and more wealth more and more jobs more and more things that will actually benefit white society just as it will black society you keep that from people you deny them that it hurts you in the end That was Simon Chadwick, the author of For the People, a Citizen's Manifesto to Shaping Our Nation's Future. 
Simon grew up in apartheid South Africa. His father, Bishop Graham Chadwick, was a prominent anti-apartheid activist and was arrested for his involvement in racial justice initiatives. Shortly after Simon and I spoke, I sat down with Joe Henderson, a lifetime student and practitioner of non-aggressive martial arts, a student and practitioner of personal immersive development with 35 years experience of training facilitation, and the founder and director of Next Level Trainings Philadelphia. Joe approaches this same concept that what's good for certain segments of society is good for all from a slightly different perspective. Are you accepting the unified version of humanity or the separate version? Because this is what separation generates. And now if you're not active on behalf of dismantling that, now you're choosing to stay in ignorance and to stay asleep. Being invested in society isn't necessarily the same thing as socialism. This might be an idealistic question, but What if it were possible to be part of building a world where people were both celebrated in their differences and valued as integral members of a collective? That's the kind of world I'm invested in working to bring about, as are the white allies you'll hear from in this episode. And I'd say that all of us generally feel somewhere between the way Brian Miller feels and the way Simon Chadwick feels. Here's Brian. Sometimes it's a little scary, but I love the people I work with, and I have no doubt that the work we're doing is God's work. It makes me optimistic. It makes me feel more dignified than I am. And here's Simon. I am a glass half full kind of guy. Somebody told me I was an eternal optimist the other day with moments of sheer panic that kind of, oh, God, it's all going to go to hell. Growing up in South Africa during apartheid and having parents who saw activism as an expression of their faith, Simon was raised to take action to dismantle systems of oppression. His father, Bishop Graham Chadwick, was arrested and exiled for his activism and dedicated himself to public and private acts of altruism. One of the things that absolutely staggered me when my father died, and I was going through his finances, and he never earned a huge amount of money. He was a few hundred months. Invariably, he gave a third of it away. And he gave it away so quietly that I never even knew that he was doing it. So it doesn't matter how loud or quiet you are, as long as you're doing something. Peter H. Ranka Jr., known to his friends as Pete, told me that his parents taught him the value of allyship as well. So my dad, for over 40 years, was a private school English teacher and administrator at Penn Charter in Germantown Friends, which are two very well-known Philadelphia private schools. And his whole life was teaching English, and then at Penn Charter, he ran the the upper school. But oddly enough, Darley, my dad is not a guy that's very outgoing and doesn't view that he's done for people what he's done. But he was so passionate about learning and about teaching about being involved with all of his students. Pete is a business development officer and assistant vice president at Univest Bank and Trust and the founder of the social connection group Friends of Pete. He spends the majority of his time supporting people in the realization of their personal and professional goals. I always bring up my dad being a teacher, but my mom was a social worker her whole life, and she worked on things 
in the Philadelphia community for years and years and years, first with the Juvenile Justice Center and then with Bayana Nurses. And her thing was always about helping other people, not in a condescending way. It's like, what is it that you need help with? And then I'll get you there and then you take it from there. Joe Henderson also attributed at least some of his passion for equity and inclusion to the lessons he learned at home. But he said his parents taught by example. They never explicitly discussed things like racial integration or cross-cultural appreciation. My father's farm experience in a small North Carolina tobacco farm kind of thing where he worked and also his his stepfather owned the land and essentially was running things. But he was, in a way, interestingly integrated in with everybody else who was working. So his friendships, his camaraderie, most of it was happening there. So he got to know people in a different way. Then when he was in the Navy, so he's, you know, I'm 73. He was in the Second World War and he was a, I don't know exactly what position he was, but they gave him the unenviable at that time to integrate a sailing vessel that was pretty much 50-50 black-white. It was pretty definite. Of course, there were people who identified differently, but they probably weren't identifying differently then. And his job was to make that work somehow. I didn't find that out about him until his funeral. He had never told me that. So, you know, to me, it was like, well, okay, dad, that would have been important to know. Thank you. But you didn't. So I got that he was, wasn't progressive, but he was, he wanted something better for people. And that came out across his goodness. Seeing goodness modeled in his father's behavior didn't render Joe immune to the racist, social, and cultural indoctrinations that we are all subjected to. And his recognition of that has been an essential part of his allyship. Listen, I'm racist, and I'm working hard to be an anti-racist. But my conditioning, when I fall asleep, it's just there. And I'm responsible. No one's going to transform that in me except me. Take for us to fight it, to realize that we all are one. Make unity and inner peace the only reason. Cause we need better, need so much better. We deserve better. Alex Vaccaro, the Richard H. Rothman Professor and Chairman, Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Professor of Neurosurgery at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, and the President of Rothman Institute, shared this about biases. The concept of hidden biases mean they're hidden biases. You don't even understand biases that you have. I don't even understand the biases I have. But the fact that we realize we have them allows us to be more open-minded as we go forward. We all have biases. There's no escaping that. And in fact, it's only after we acknowledge our conditioning that we can do the work necessary to transform it. So what is the work? How do you, how do I, how do we become allies? 
And just to be clear, I mean authentic allies, not performative ones. So a performative ally is somebody who does and says all the right things and really doesn't either understand the depth to which they need to do the work to really get to that inclusive place or they just don't have the time and the effort. So they're saying what is the right thing to do rather than actually getting into the depths of how do I make a change in my organization, especially as a, a people leader or an executive or somebody who's, who's leading an HR team, actually understanding this is the work I need to do. I can't just call myself this. And, and sometimes, right. honestly, they're well-intended performative allies. They, they think they're doing the right things. I mean, I go to the gym and I think I'm working out because I'm picking up weights, but I'm not doing what, <laughs> you know, if a professional trainer was in there helping me, what the real work would look like. That was Jen O'Ryan, the founder of Double Tall Consulting and the author of Inclusive AF, a field guide for accidental diversity experts. Jen and the other allies we interviewed for this episode offered a number of tangible tips for what to do to become a better human to our fellow humans. Numbers one and two on everyone's list were learning and unlearning. We need to strip away some of the messaging that tells us that certain people are worth more than others, or that we have knowledge about communities that we've had no exposure to. And we need to seek reliable information and education that reflects diverse experiences and perspectives. I'm a big, big believer, proponent, that more and more, again, in the coming months and years, of people explaining that it's diversity of thought and experience, not that you can tie directly by, by looking at, at somebody. The person who runs Friends of Pete with me is my friend Darnell Davis. And Darnell is a 40-something African-American guy. I'm a 50-something Caucasian man. But politically, I'm to the left of center and he's to the right of center. But even with our friends, we'll be in a dialogue and people will look at Darnell and be like, hey, you know, Black Lives Matter and all, hey, Pete, you know, how about the Trump rally? And they're trying to be engaging and trying to say, hey, you know, I understand where you're coming from. When you just judge somebody just because of whatever, it's often wrong. There are wonderful resources that will support you in learning and unlearning. And we'll include a link to our resource page in the show notes. But the hope is that you'll shift from information to application by engaging with other people. That said, don't expect your Black friends to educate you about racial awareness or any member of any marginalized group to educate you about their experiences, unless they're a professional and you're compensating them for their time and expertise. So while I highly suggest that each and every one of us engage with people of all races, genders, socioeconomic statuses, cultures, religions, and other identities, and be enriched by that variety, I'd urge you not to put people in the position of having to explain everything about who they are and what they've been through for your own personal development. Not only is that exhausting to attempt, it can make a person who's already experienced marginalization feel like they're being asked to represent every other person who happens to share a single element of their identity. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. 
As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com pages diversity, or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code diversity to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. A good place to start talking through things like systemic racism or America's untaught history might be in a structured group setting. For instance, structured educational seminars, trainings, affinity groups, or racial caucuses. For me, it has been kind of having these spaces where I can be with other people that learning together like a learning cohort, I think, is a a great model. It takes the burden off of people of color's shoulders to learn. Racial affinity groups aren't just for white people, and they aren't about getting stuck in shame or blame. In fact, they offer valuable skills and resources that support people wherever they are on the spectrum between ally and accomplice. If it's an affinity group thing, or if it's an affinity group for Black people or Asian people or whatever, you can find, like, great comfort 
I was fortunate enough to be in the learning cohort for equity. It was an affinity group of white people that University of New Hampshire put on. It's called L2E2. And it was like five or six sessions of just learning about racism and your place in it and gaining some knowledge and tools so that you can have some agency in the conversation. And the point of it was not to place the burden on people of color to educate me. And then got involved with what's called the Race and Equity Series through New Hampshire Endowment for Health. And they they look at different sectors of society, education, healthcare, and criminal justice and law enforcement was one of them. And I started participating in that working group on police reform and criminal justice reform. And I'm, I'm actually one of the facilitators now. One of the tools that we have used with companies is identity caucusing or racial caucusing, where there can be a space for the white folks, the white identified employees of a company to meet with each other. And then, you know, for the black and brown, other other folks of color to meet separate from the white folks. And sometimes initially at first blush, people can be like, wait a minute, you're separating out the racial groups to talk with each other and like excluding others? Like, doesn't that seem racist in itself? And I think the the short answer is the spaces are needed because white folks honestly need space away from people of color to process our own sort of work and teach each other about like how we can be better allies and better partners in dismantling the systems of oppression. And it can be incredibly burdensome for white folks to be in the same group as, as black folks or other folks to have that processing space. So the white ally caucus is really to create a space for white folks to process and to like educate each other. And then the POC caucus, a person of color caucus would be more for support and solidarity and strategizing around what's happening, what is affecting us and, you know, being vulnerable and, and being a supportive space for like, if something's coming up or, just to provide a safer space for folks of color to sort of have those conversations and not have to like have the emotional labor of educating white folks about white supremacy. That was Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lyft Economy and co-author of the B Corp Handbook, How to Use Business as a Force for Good. Ryan provides diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting services to B Corps and other social enterprises with a specific focus on working with white-led and or majority white companies to educate, organize, and mobilize white-identified people towards collective liberation. I've experienced the power of identity caucuses in my own life, having participated in several, but having never been to a white affinity group, I wanted to know what white people do at white affinity groups. In the white caucus, it's what do we do typically that leads to harm? How do we want to show up better in our, in our work with folks of color? And what's showing up for us and how we hold ourselves in the day-to-day, what's going on? We're learning on, on a week-to-week basis about Things like, you know, how does environmental racism work? You know, climate justice, it's Earth Month, right? And why are a lot of toxic dumps and facilities always put in black and brown communities? And like, how is that tied to racism? Like, it's not just environmentally bad. And then the work is like bringing it back into our real lives. You know, in many of our lives, we also have folks of color that we're friends with or at colleagues at work, et cetera. And so we're sort of practicing how the things we've learned and like trying not to cause harm and trying to be empathetic, but it's like this continual process of learning and then applying and then learning and applying. And of course, there's a fear, I think for me, 
white people about wanting to not get it wrong and not perpetuate patterns of oppression. Even the most well-meaning allies will get things wrong. It's inevitable. Here's what Emily Anderson, marketing director and lifestyle expert turned human-centered designer and coding teacher, had to say about how she handles it when she makes a mistake. I am learning to really not be defensive, you know, and not immediately jump into my own bias and really just step back and say, and not be abusing myself over it, but, but to rather just be like, what is going on here? And take accountability for my cause in whatever it is. Allyship is imperfect because we humans are imperfect. Here's how John Monahan, director of partnerships at All Aces, Inc., and a retired chief of police, described his early experiences as he was initially learning how to be an ally. I just dove in headfirst into, you know, racial equity work like an idiot. I mean, like tripping all over myself because I didn't have the lens or the education or any of that. But I was like determined to just keep showing up. Continually showing up is essential. It builds trust and resilience, and it's like learning any skill. The moments where we get it wrong offer lessons for how to move forward differently. Here's Jen O'Ryan again. The thing is, it's okay to fail. It's okay. Fail fast and fail elegantly. Fail beautifully, but don't be afraid and don't let that hold you back. When I asked Melinda Brianna Epler to share about times when she's been an effective ally, she told me, I don't like talking, you know, kind of celebrating my own aspects of allyship, but I will say part of allyship is learning and making mistakes. Melinda went on to relate an experience during which she and the team at Change Catalyst were hosting a tech conference. They'd intentionally structured the conference to be inclusive, but even after thinking through things like wheelchair accessibility, racial representation, and gender-inclusive bathrooms, they neglected to arrange for an ASL interpreter. It wasn't until shortly before the conference when an attendee who required ASL services let them know of their need that Melinda and her team realized their oversight. It turned out to be an expensive mistake since they hadn't built ASL interpretation into their budget. But they hired an interpreter, and that experience opened Melinda's eyes to the need to accommodate in advance rather than in a more reactive way. As a result of that, realized that and this is the, the key piece of allyship is going beyond that, okay, yes, accommodating the people that ask to be accommodated, and also what else are you going to do to create change for them and just create change in the system. And so we created an ability and tech summit to really address diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically for people with disabilities in tech. And then have continued to build that into every event, you know, moving forward, making sure that we have good representation of people with disabilities in our conferences and and that we're really designing from the beginning with accommodation and accessibility in mind. Jen also talked about designing with accessibility in mind. We have to be able to recognize what isn't being represented here. And because there's also that level of invisible diversity, neurological differences, neurodiverse humans, things like that, that we have to really look at things and say, how would I experience this as someone else? And asking those questions really leads you down the path of, oh, I didn't think about that. How would I experience this as someone else is a great question. In order to answer it effectively, we need to have had exposure to other people and other identities. 
When a person has privilege, they often aren't required to look beyond their own cultural references. So that's an invitation to every prospective ally. Put aside the privilege of ignorance and continue to engage. I think there is definitely like a baseline learning and education that every white person needs. And like we're never going to get to like, okay, I've learned everything I possibly can learn. And now I won't make any mistakes uh, like in terms of like how I interact with other folks. So it's also about showing up, making a mistake if it'll happen, but then showing up again and not saying, well, let's just forget it. I'll never get it or I'm not being appreciated. So I'm just going to stop. I think that's, that's the privilege that we have as white folks to say, I want to engage in dialogues about race or not. That's, that's a privilege because folks of color and others don't have that privilege of deciding whether to engage in conversations about race. Moving beyond affinity groups, reading books, and the baseline knowledge Ryan spoke about, if you're ready and willing to go further, let's talk about situations where it's okay to ask people of a variety of identities for their expertise. Figuring out how to pull in your experts, right? I can do work around inclusion and diversity, but I don't have a lot of understanding around the lived experience of people with disabilities, And so I need to bring my experts in and and have a conversation about how do we structure this in a way that's not only inclusive, but accessible to people and actually get to it. Now, how do you do that without making people feel sort of marginalized or tokenized? That is a tricky balance. It really is. But the thing is, is that they are the expert in their experience. And that perspective needs to be brought to the table and brought to the forefront. It's a humanizing approach. And the thing is, it's not ever done. Right. Because our understanding is continually evolving and who we are as humans is continuing to change. If you are bringing in experts to your organization or corporation or a group that you belong to or seeking one on one coaching, make sure you're compensating them for their time and expertise and also that they're qualified in the subject matter. Just because a person holds a certain identity doesn't mean they can teach others about it. So seek information from people who have expertise in the area you're seeking to learn more about. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. As for non-professional exposure to and engagement with people of different identities, the best way to go about being an ally is to cultivate authentic relationships with diverse networks of people. 
Rob Lawless of Rob's 10,000 Friends is roughly halfway to having 10,000 one-on-one conversations with people of a variety of different backgrounds, races, ages, and identities. I was the 2,451st person to participate in his project. And when we reconvened for his interview for this podcast, Rob told me that he thinks every human interaction has the potential to change our lives. Of his conversations with strangers who became his friends, Rob told me, I don't even see it as interviews. I think that's a misconception that people have about the project is they think that I'm showing up to get a story out of people or, or to gain something from them. And it's, it's much less than that. It's like, I want to show up and experience that time with them and have that connection with them. Now, oftentimes that does take the case of us chatting about our backgrounds and sharing stories with each other. And I find that the best meetings I have with people are where they get to know me as well as I get to know them. And you start to feel that connection forming between the two of you. I just have a genuine curiosity in who people are, where they've been, where they are now, and where they want to go with their lives. If you care deeply about other people, it's going to bother you when you realize that some of those people might want to go places in their life and are barred from getting there because they're up against unfair and unwarranted obstacles. Here's where if you have access, influence, or the ability to make your voice heard, you want to leverage your privilege in service of others. I was like, all right, if I've got white privilege, I get access to certain people and areas more easily than other folks do, then I can say things that they need to hear that they would not hear any way else. So I can use my privilege for good. So I can use it to help move this cause forward by showing people that would not normally see or and say things to people who would not normally hear. So that's kind of how I was like, you know what, I've got some agency in this. I can walk into police department doors and have conversations that a Black Lives Matter activist would not be able to have the same access. And I can say it perhaps in ways that at least start the conversation, plant some seeds in some people's heads, and hopefully over time grow our group of folks doing this work. Although we work very, very hard and long in the city of Philadelphia and in the neighborhoods where there is so much gun violence, we also work very hard outside of those neighborhoods in the suburbs because that's where the votes are, frankly. And that's where people need to understand the toll of gun violence on all communities. And those are the people who can, through their votes and through their money in supporting candidates, can make real change. And our hope is to begin to build a bridge between those two communities so that they can work together to deal with the problem of gun violence, which is going to take time, but somebody needs to start it. And we feel like, in fact, our faith-basedness is is the perhaps easiest route to bringing those two communities together. Here's what Joe told me about the implementation of allyship. It can't just reside in the philosophy. There's no time to make it all about, well, I have a lot of awareness there. That awareness must be plugged into activism, enlightened activism, which means the policies that actually create more of the same and worse must be dismantled. So I think some of it is very grassroots, almost political. We certainly can't skip that piece. I don't think we can skip that piece. But also... Allowing those who have the lived experience to lead and not pretend that 
even if we have a forum, we're going to, I want to be more curious about what I don't know, because that's the stuff that's, I'm in contribution to the things that don't work in so many ways. Something that Ryan Honeyman and the team at Lyft Economy are clear doesn't work, something that all of us have likely been in contribution to, are practices around money and business that perpetuate and perpetrate racism. So much of our thinking around the term economy is around transactions, finance. But I think there's older traditional ways of thinking about economy, you know, gift economy, which is you're not actually charging, you're actually using gifts. There's barter and trade. There's also just rethinking, at least in the U.S. and I guess in many countries, our economy is deeply intertwined with many systems of oppression, including racism, white supremacy, class class battles, degradation of the environment, etc. And so when we talk about the economy, we're not just talking about how do we increase the flow of goods and services, and that's it. We have to think about some of these systemic issues that are all intersectional and how they interrelate and how to work on them at multiple points. The individualistic model of more for me, less for you is rooted in colonial culture. It's often within the marginalized communities that you find acts of immense charity and goodwill going on, where a lady who has only a few dollars to rub together takes in somebody who needs to be taken in and feeds them. There's a lot of value to bringing people into business decision-making who have had different life experiences. Emily had this to say about inclusive leadership. When it starts at the top, where there's inclusion, it just trickles down and it just becomes a part of it. Here's Joe Henderson again. The interruption is to rediscover or reconnect with that impulse to live, to be, to contribute to get along, to connect, all of those very high-level vibrations of human joy and human purpose and human being that we amp down to all the isms. And white supremacism is one of the biggest. I would say it's the most pervasive on the planet. We are one. We are one. And we can operate from separation. So we could call it white supremacy, or we could call it whatever we want to call it, but it really is, to me, a choice of identifying from wholeness to separateness. Activism, to me, is a reflection of, I see the same consciousness, and when I'm awake, and I think everybody, when they're awake, that's what we want, and then we get lost in the fragmentation of it, and then we begin to protecting our smallness, and then it can devolve from there. And so the interruption to me is just that, a remembering of who we are, what we are, the opportunity of a life. There is so much love and so much wholeness there. And let's enjoy our diversity and let it all be in contribution. Brian Miller spoke about using faith as a catalyst for contribution. He said this of the work Heeding God's Call to End Gun Violence does to spread awareness through t-shirt memorials erected in remembrance of those who have died by gunshot. It all has the effect of opening faith communities once it puts up a memorial, which the memorials themselves are not controversial. They're not political. They're not conflictual. So we hope then, and this is our experience, 
a church or a synagogue or faith community were asked to put it up. Then when it goes up, it opens space in that faith community to talk about gun violence. And we do programs about it then. And what happened is two people that have sat in the, on the same pew for years have never talked about gun violence or its prevention, end up talking about it, finding out that they share similar views. And now they work together to begin to take their views to, into activism, which is what we're all about. We're all about moving people on the, if you will, spectrum of advocacy from seeing the memorial to the lost at one end to active lobbying and other advocacy on the other end and all the parts in between. It's true. There is a spectrum of advocacy. Anything you can do to strengthen society as a whole and to dismantle systems of oppression is helpful. I think reaching out and actually just helping people that you can help is one thing you can do. Seek out causes that are worthy of your involvement, whether that be just packing envelopes or whether it be through money or whether it be through marching on the streets, whatever it is. But don't be passive because the stronger society is in and of itself, the more the stronger it is at actually combating things that are you know, seeking to bring it down. For me, the hardest thing about this work is remaining persistent even when results are slow to come. But the allies we spoke with all seem more capable of being in the process than someone with my impatient personality. In the beginning of my project, I would try to connect with people of different backgrounds and be like, maybe they like this style of music, or maybe they like this fashion or this particular industry or something. And I really learned to just sit back and not make assumptions and let people tell me who they were. It starts in a very small, small group level, like six to eight people. And you start getting them looking at their organization because they're the experts in their organizations. I'm the expert in this over here, but we have to have both. And so it really is those one conversation at a time. And as you bring people along, you can expand the impact and the scope of what's being changed. So it's like to say, start with what you can control, even though we know control is an illusion. <laughs> and incremental changes that build upon themselves. Personally, I like to say that underneath all of this, the through line is that I, I want to change the world one conversation at a time. It's not going to happen overnight. We consider it a, a 500 year plan to shift mm -hmm. to the new economy, but it can happen sooner if people like with climate crisis and with COVID and other things, you know, racial justice uprisings, suddenly dramatic shifts in our systems can happen as well. So we think it will take 500 years, but it could theoretically take much less time if there continues to be a dramatic shift of people towards these new systems. When we're talking about all of this, everybody starts somewhere, right? So if some of this is really new to you and like, ah, overwhelming, it's too much, then know that you just need to start somewhere and then take progressively more actions along the way, along your journey. And starts with learning, unlearning, relearning, and making sure that you're doing no harm, and then taking action and taking steadily increased action so that you're, you're advocating for people, that you're helping change systems that need to be changed um, ultimately. And just take one step at a time, but keep taking action. If you have enough people behind a movement or an idea that you can change things, but 
obviously we have to change things through the levers that exist. That means that, you know, you have to be active, you have to make your voice heard, you have to make it heard such that politicians listen to it. One of the ways to do that is to vote. Now, one of the things that we know and we've seen for decades, if not centuries in this country, is that votes actually are not equal, and particularly when there's a lot of voter suppression going on and gerrymandering and so on. So, for example, in Congress right now, there's HR1, which is an entire makeover of the voting system, mm -hmm. taking gerrymandering out of the hands of state legislatures, for example. If you want that done, you have to speak up for it. You have to push for it. You have to make your voice heard. It doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. May not even happen this time around, but you have to push for it. You can't sit back. You may already be taking action as an ally, but if you're not, here's what Rob Lawless suggests. Making inroads in a way that is authentic. I asked Ryan Honeyman to share one lesson he's learned as part of his collaborative writing experience with Dr. Tiffany Jana, who co-authored the second edition of the B Corp Handbook. So many, hard to count. But one, that's, one that stands out is Dr. Jana had, and, and other, you know, honestly, other black and brown leaders in the B Corp community have been talking about this for, for many years, which is a lot of white-led or white-majority companies think, okay, I, I need to think about diversity now, so how do we hire more folks of color? Like, that's their initial, like, gut reaction. It's like, we just need to hire more people of color, and that will fix <laughs> the problems. Admittedly, I knew that that was not the whole case, but I didn't know what to do about this conundrum of how do you diversify a company? Because, you know, there's many companies that are, again, majority white or white-led that have a genuine interest in being a more diverse company. But I think what I learned, what really stood out to me was, Maximizing the diversity that already exists in a company first is one tip that I learned that really stood out to me. This idea that, that there's no diversity in a company unless it's racial is a belief I think that many white folks need to sort of get past. And so there was this idea of like what diversity exists and like let's call that out. Are women being treated the same as men? Are, are women being interrupted in meetings? Are LGBTQ folks being uh, respected? And are there comments or remarks that folks are dealing with currently in the existing business structure that are leading it to be a culture and organization that's actually repelling folks of color and other folks from marginalized identities in wanting to even be at the company? So I think that was really helpful for me to learn that some of the work is not like, okay, we need to hire, we have an open hire, we need to find a Latinx or, or Black folk person to, to do this job. It's let's actually take the time to dismantle the systems of oppression and patterns of marginalization that already exist in our company and maximize our existing diversity so that in a year or two, it takes a long time to sort of work through this stuff. We can then be a more receptive and ready organization for more folks of color and other folks to want to work for. In thinking about allyship, it can be tempting to think that the work exists outside of ourselves or our existing relationship. After all, what's self-reflection got to do with supporting other people? 
and cultivating greater emotional intimacy in our existing relationship seems irrelevant to supporting people outside of our networks. But being better to people requires us to slow down and notice the things that drive us and the ways that we dismiss other people's thoughts and feelings, including the people we claim to love. There's a lot of technology enthusiasts who advocate filtering out biases through things like regulating interactions and filtering through resumes or anonymizing the hiring process. I asked Melinda about these practices, especially resume filtering. The kind of technology uh, on the hiring side that is there to filter bias, I would say that's what, what the intention of that technology. Mm-hmm. And love the folks that have created that technology. And I think that that is dangerous because what that does is a few things. One is still programmed by humans that may have biases and often technology when we build them, we have in any diversity, equity, inclusion work, when you first kind of go to this work, you often have one kind of demographic in mind, right? And so most technologies like that are not built to filter out all biases, you know, maybe race, maybe gender, but what about people with disabilities? What about people with different religions? And and so there's that that intersectional as well piece of it. So that is one is, is, you know, that technology is still built by humans. And the other is that essentially what we're saying, if we implement those technologies is, well, we're just going to filter out your biases. So it's okay. You can still have them. We're just going to filter it out with technology. But that is dangerous because we really need to change our biases. We need to change the behaviors rather than filter those behaviors with technology because those behaviors come out in so many other ways than just that initial resume writing, that initial outreach. What happens in the interview? There's no technology to, to filter out the biases then, so people still have them and it comes through there. It comes through in the offer. It comes through in the onboarding. It comes through in how we treat each other in our workplaces. It comes through how we promote all of these things continue to perpetuate. So why not really build the skills and the understanding to reduce the biases in the human? Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. I want to address two last important points. If we're committed to contributing to the lives of others as allies, what should we be looking to give? We've done a study on what people want from allies at Change Catalyst, and the, the report will be coming out in a couple months. And one of the things that we learned is that people, more than anything else, what they want from allies is helping them build their confidence. And then the second one is trust, right? Those who go hand in hand, don't they? You know, trust me to do the work that I can do. Trust me and my expertise and help me build my confidence because I've lost it because people haven't believed in that. People want to feel valued. And by valuing them, we derive value in our own lives. It's only through contribution that we find connection, hope, and liberation. 
Jen told me this about restricting opportunities to certain people and barring others from access. If it's not available to other populations, then then they're missing out. And not only are they missing out on the opportunity, but that organization is missing out on all these amazing perspectives and worldviews that lead to that better outcome and more innovation. And that missing out can happen at a large scale level, or it can happen one-on-one in the small but significant moments people share. Throughout our conversation, Rob spoke about the value of interpersonal interaction. When you talk about that potential to change your life, I think that that potential could be an increased sense of belonging. I think it can be a different perspective, and I think it can be the traditional opening of doors for your future. He added, When people think about connection and they think about value from that connection, they think, okay, what door just opened for me? I'm going to meet this person, and then what, they're going to introduce me to someone who can help me land a business deal. But can you argue that that interaction is more important than someone who made you realize that you should appreciate your time with your mom and dad while they're still there? So that plays out immediately, right? Like that person, even though you don't see them or potentially talk to them again, that value started playing out immediately for you and carries on consistently through your life. If the absence of allyship can be defined as either intentional or unintentional acts of exclusion, my invitation to you is to make it a daily practice to participate in meaningful acts of inclusion. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment or visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can get in touch, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other services. Thank you so much to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Joe Henderson, Ryan Honeyman, Emily Anderson, Rob Lawless, Peter H. Ranka Jr., Melinda Brianna Epler, John Monahan, Brian Miller, Simon Chadwick, Alex Vaccaro, and Jen O'Ryan. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Crane's production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. This episode includes reporting by Anna Marie Jones. The music you heard is better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, 
Pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.